This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, close your eyes and think of prisoner. Maybe it's someone in a black-and-white stripe getup of some kind, or maybe it's somebody who looks like they could be on the HBO show, Oz. But chances are, your prisoner is not a woman. Now, that's not completely surprising. We don't see many women prisoners in the media outside of Martha Stewart. And even in the real world, they only make up about 7% of the prison population. But given the size of the prison population in the United States, 7% is not so few. In fact, there are about 200,000 women incarcerated in the United States right now. And they all need health care that is specific to women. That's something that hasn't always been planned for in a system that's 93% male. Jean Flavin is an associate professor of sociology at Fordham University. And for the last few years, she's been doing research on women prisoners and their health care needs. She's also a member of the Coalition for Women Prisoners, an advocacy group for incarcerated women. She says that women's health care in prisons is at the nexus of two enormous challenges facing U.S. society, the poor health of many low-income racial and ethnic minorities, and a general lack of regard for the well-being of the burgeoning U.S. prison population. Later on the show, we'll hear from some young, low-income mothers about their own experiences at that nexus. But first, Jean Flavin joined me recently in the studio to talk about her work. Jean Flavin, thanks so much for coming in. It's good to be here. Thank you. Now, tell me, what is the rate of incarceration among women? What portion of the total prison population also do they make up? Well, nationally, incarceration rates among women are much lower than they are for men, but they are soaring, particularly for women of color. And I'll get to that here in a moment. In terms of numbers, women are about 7 to 8% of the incarcerated population. There are about 200,000 women incarcerated in the United States. Uh, around 106,000 women are being held in either state or federal prisons. Another 94,000 or so are held in jails. Overall, there is about a million women who are under the control of the criminal justice system. In other words, they're either incarcerated or they're under some form of community supervision like probation or parole. Uh, Here in New York, there are about 3,000 women who are currently being incarcerated in New York State prisons, and there are another 27,000 who are uh, being held under, you know, or either under probation or on parole. As I mentioned before, the, the rates are lower for women than they are for men, but they have grown really rapidly over the last 25 years. Um, there's been about a 7 to 800% increase in the last 25 years. Now, part of this is because there was a small number of women who were incarcerated at the beginning of the boom relative to the number of men. But the other part of it is that we have seen an increase in arrests, and we've seen an increased willingness to incarcerate women for their crimes. We're now more inclined to incarcerate women where we may have been more reluctant to do so in the past. Now, who are these women? Well, as mentioned, um, they're disproportionately black or Hispanic. Most of them, around 85%, are of childbearing age, between 18 and 44 years old. Around three-quarters of them are mothers. About two-thirds are mothers of minor children. 50 to 60% do not have a high school education. A lot of them, prior to being incarcerated, were not employed full-time. In terms of the crimes they commit, about the vast majority are not being incarcerated for violent crimes. Roughly a third to more than a third are incarcerated for drug offenses. Another third or so are incarcerated for property offenses. And then the minority are incarcerated for violent offenses. Now, one area that you are especially interested in is uh, reproductive health among 
incarcerated women. Tell me about that and why it's something of special interest to you. Well, part of it is it stems from my larger interest in just reproductive rights and reproductive justice overall, and in particular, how the criminal justice system plays a role in women's reproduction. So, for example, um, I'm interested in how our responses to domestic violence influence a woman's ability to take care of our kids. It also, I have had a longstanding interest in incarcerated women. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that one, in general, until maybe the last 10, 15, 20 years, we tended to ignore incarcerated women. Uh, Two, when we would pay attention to incarcerated women, we tended to focus on HIV infection and the situation of pregnant women. And so one of the things I noticed or I've been concerned about is I would like to broaden that concern for women's health beyond just their HIV status and and the fact that a number of them are, are pregnant. One of the things I've learned during the course of my research is a lot of facilities do provide some level of health care in prisons, but the quality of that health care, and in particular the quality of the reproductive health care, leaves a lot to be desired. So what kinds of problems are there? Well, in terms of the kinds of health problems that women have who are incarcerated, it is very similar to the sorts of problems that women in the free world experience. There is a saying, however, that if a woman on the outside gets a cold, a woman on the inside will have pneumonia. So you see a concentration of the type of problems. Things are diagnosed later. They tend to progress, become more serious health problems. And some of those are things like diabetes, gynecologic cancers, STDs. The same sorts of things that women are concerned about on the outside are are certainly found on the inside. And then things like uh, HIV should be a concern. Hepatitis is another concern. So, So you have you have the problem of a lot of women who haven't had the benefit of good health care on the outside. So they wind up incarcerated, and a lot of these health problems are still there. Then you run into the the generally low quality of medical care provided to incarcerated people in general. And I also want to pause for a minute and make the point that there are a lot of very dedicated medical uh, personnel and correctional staff who work in prisons. So when I say the quality of care is low, I'm not saying every single facility or every single medical doctor. There are a lot of dedicated people who have worked very hard to call attention to these. Having said that, when you look at the conditions and the responses to some women's health, it's it's really pretty appalling. And um, I'd like to just give a couple of examples. And some of these are examples of not only pregnant women, which tends to get a lot uh, more press but also just some of the challenges that non-pregnant women have faced. For example, there was a a lawsuit, a civil suit, filed in Tutwiler Prison in Alabama, and the suit was claiming that state officials and the for-profit or privatized medical care provider provided really inadequate treatment to the women. And just to give you an example or two, there was a a 39-year-old woman, and she started to bleed heavily, and she was having a lot of cramping because, it, as it turns out, her uterus had prolapsed into her vagina. She started to ask for help for the bleeding in June and didn't get anywhere. And she bled every single day from August to September and eventually became anemic without any medical attention being given. There was another woman. She was 48 years old, and she had surgery for breast cancer. This, the judge who sentenced her told her, yes, you know, once you're incarcerated, you'll get chemotherapy. But it took 18 months before she received that treatment. Tutwiler got some attention in part, tragically enough, because a number of women died in a very short period of time. 
So there were three women who were incarcerated in 2004. There was a, a lupus patient who died of a brain hemorrhage. Uh, the doctor in that case had canceled tests for her to, to see an outside doctor. Another patient's high cholesterol was never treated, and a third inmate hanged herself after she had been five days on a suicide watch. So we're talking, these are kind of the the big cases, and that doesn't even begin to touch on low-level infections that left untreated become big infections. So there's really a spectrum of poor health care being provided. How is women's health care in prison a special issue? Is their situation different from, from that of men? Medical treatment in prisons is just generally pretty poor. Having said that, I think that there are a couple reasons why women who are incarcerated are in a particularly bad position um, when it comes to getting treatment. One is we have adopted this idea of add women and stir when it comes to providing them services, including medical treatment. Prisons were designed along a one-size-fits-all model that was based on how we incarcerate men. So women's prisons often operate under rules that were designed for prisons that house violent men, even though women are much less likely to have a history of violence or to be incarcerated for violent offenses. Um, There are also uniquely female conditions. Women menstruate. Women go through menopause. Women get pregnant. uh, Women need gynecological care. When we have provided those services in women's prisons, it's tended to be as an afterthought. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning on the show with Jean Flavin. Flavin is an associate professor of sociology at Fordham and an advocate for better health care for women prisoners. In a few minutes, we'll hear from two teenage mothers in one of Chicago's poorest neighborhoods. But first, let's continue our conversation with Jean Flavin. So assuming that people who are incarcerated don't get the best medical care available, why do you think that women in particular would receive inferior medical care? What would the you know, sort of underlying reasons for this be? Part of the quality, the poor quality of incarcerated women's medical care reflects the lower quality of care provided to all prisoners, regardless of their gender. Prisons are usually located in rural, isolated areas away from population centers. I would also say, add that that is particularly true for women's prisons. Because there are fewer women to be incarcerated, there are fewer facilities. And thus, those facilities tend to be, um, women tend to be more likely to be incarcerated farther from their home. Makes it harder for folks to visit. It's not as visible. We don't have the numbers of women. So as a result, there isn't the public awareness Prisons are also disproportionately populated by women who are poor and, as I mentioned, women who are members of racial and ethnic minority groups. And one legacy that has has been around for, you know, over 200 years is the notion that black women in particular have a high tolerance for pain and suffering. And there there are other dehumanizing stereotypes that accompany this that I think encourage um, calloused care and disregard for women and their medical uh, issues. There's also the stereotype that they're shameless and that they're hypersexual. And there's this kind of prevailing attitude that because a woman has been arrested, because she's been charged, or because she's been convicted of a criminal offense, that she's somehow indifferent to intrusions on her privacy or that she surrendered her right to expect some privacy. Ted Koppel on ABC in 1999, he was doing an interview with a California prison medical director and 
he was responding, Ted Koppel was doing the story because he'd heard accounts that prison medical staff were performing unnecessary pelvic exams on the incarcerated women. And when he was asked about this, the California, the medical director suggested that perhaps some women liked having pelvic exams. And this is a direct quote. He said, maybe it's because it's the only male contact the women get. Maybe there's some gratification on their part. He, I might add, after this show aired, was released, but he was reassigned to another prison. So he he did not lose his job over that remark. Also, I think incarcerated women are subjected to more stigma when they commit a crime than men are. A, A woman, especially a mother, you could argue is punished twice. She's punished once for her crime, and she's also punished for being a bad woman or a bad mother. So, for example, a couple years ago, I did a study which looked at how men and women who were being charged with cocaine offenses, uh, and actually in this case were convicted of cocaine offenses, I was looking at their sentence. And in particular, I wanted to know what was the impact of whether or not they had children and whether or not they lived with children on the punishment they get. Now, you would think that that wouldn't have anything to do with the sentence, that you would just be punished for your crime. If you commit this crime, here's your punishment. We'll take into account your prior record. But, But basically, it would be legal factors that drove it. And what I found was that Women who had children and lived with them, if you controlled for the prior record, if you controlled for how serious the offense was, you found that women who lived with their kids, who had kids and lived with them, were sentenced less severely than any other group of men or women. So you could say, well, gosh, those women are getting a break, you know. The flip side of that, however, is the group that was punished most harshly, again, controlling for offense seriousness, controlling for prior record, were those women who had kids but didn't live with them. The results suggest that women, even more so than men, are being held accountable not only to the crime, but to how well they kind of fit the bill of what we think a good woman or a good mother should be. So women who had their kids were living with their their moms or something like that, or their kids had been taken away by the state, they were sentenced the most harshly? Yes, even more than any group of men, which was not a finding I expected. We know that men on average, tend to be more likely to be sentenced to prison for a longer period of time. But usually once you take into account how serious the crime was or their prior record, the difference washes out. But even, you know, for men, whether or not they had a kid or whether or not they they lived with their child made no difference whatsoever to the outcome, to the sentence. It was only in the case of women that judges appeared to be uh, making decisions and taking into account whether or not they had children and whether or not they live with them. I have to ask, we are talking about this, and I think some people might be saying, you know, sure, prison life is tough, and you might not get great health care, and maybe you can't see your family as much as you'd like, but there are people all over the country who are having a tough time in lots of ways, and they haven't been convicted of crimes. Shouldn't they get decent health care before we start worrying about the prison population? How would you respond to that? There's this concept of the, the principle of less or least eligibility, which many members of the public subscribe to. It's this idea that until every law-abiding citizen in the free world, you know, is able to care and nurture their children or has health care, until every law-abiding citizen in the free world has these benefits than inmates shouldn't expect. And and arguably, you know, people don't deserve it. Particularly, and I want to go back to the issue of health care for a moment. 
that attitude is exactly what has contributed to the problems. That the idea that they don't deserve it, if if people out on the outside can't have it, they don't deserve it, is exactly why we see kind of atrocious conditions of care and atrocious conditions of confinement in prisons. But claims of less eligibility to the contrary, quality inmate health care makes a lot of sense. For one, given that we rely so heavily on a form of punishment that deprives people of liberty, we are in essence taking custody and guardianship of the people that we incarcerate. So my feeling is that society bears a legitimate responsibility for housing, feeding, providing medical care, maintaining family ties to the people we incarcerate. If we're going to punish people by taking away their liberty, then with that punishment comes a responsibility that we assume to make sure people have health care and ties to their family. And then from a strictly economic standpoint, I mean, even if you were to throw kind of the the principal position out the window, from a strictly economic standpoint, if we don't afford incarcerated women decent health care, including prenatal care, if we don't afford incarcerated women contact with their children, it is going to be society that is going to foot the bill for their health costs that they'll have when they come out for the costs of foster care, for the costs of terminating their parental rights. So I really do believe that it's in the public's best interest to care about incarcerated women. We have been talking about women who are not pregnant as well as ones who are, but a lot of women do come into prison pregnant and a lot of women get pregnant when they are in prison. What about pregnancy? How does the prison system handle that? And also, how do they handle the experience of delivering the baby? Yeah, that that has started ACLU and Amnesty International Human Rights Watch have really um, made some progress in getting people to pay attention to the issue of incarcerated pregnant women. Again, the care leaves a lot to be desired. One of the issues that's gotten a lot of attention is the practice of shackling pregnant women. In 2006, Amnesty International found that it that in at least 38 states in the Federal Bureau of Prisons permit the use of restraints on women in their third trimester. Often security concerns are what's being used to justify this, saying, well, we need to make sure they're secure when we're transporting them to the hospital. We need to keep them shackled when they're at the hospital. But in reality, the practice just can't be justified on those grounds. One, correctional officers accompany the women to the hospital. Two, when a woman is in labor, I mean, it is just not going to happen that she's thinking about escaping. I mean, it, it's just not needed. You can't justify it on security concerns. And as a result, you are seeing some states moving away from the practice. But there have been some... There was a Chicago jail inmate, Maria Jones. She was shackled to the bed. The woman had no history of escaping. She had no history of violence. So there really wasn't a security justification that could be cited here. The doctor determined that the baby was about to be born and started to get the bed ready for delivery. But, and this is Maria's words, she said, because I was shackled to the bed, they couldn't remove the lower part of the bed for the delivery, and they couldn't put my feet in the stirrups. My feet were still shackled together, and I couldn't get my legs apart, Maria recalled. The doctor called for the officer, but the officer had already gone down the hall. No one else could unlock the shackles, and my baby was coming, but I couldn't open my legs. Now, I have never given birth. <laughs> I have I've never been in labor, but I think we could all agree that, that that was inhumane treatment and it was not unique. Even in states that have passed bans on shackling, the practice continues. But another area which is um, important, prenatal care. Different facilities have different levels of prenatal care. 
But a lot of times it's something as basic as the diet, the menu. I mean, not even being able to have uh, decent nutrition during the course of your pregnancy. So there was, you know, a menu, a sample menu in a California prison that was, you know, bologna, jello, hot dogs, you know, high salt, low nutrition type meals. So prenatal care is kind of another area where we need improvement. What um what typically happens to children after they're born? Well, it depends. It depends a lot in the facility. In some facilities, women aren't permitted to breastfeed their newborns, and they may only have one to three days before their infant is turned over to a family member or the foster care system. There are a few other facilities that offer model programs where a woman and her infant remains together during part of her sentence. So, for example, Bedford Hills Correctional Facility here in Bedford, New York, is one of these programs. It allows pregnant prisoners who qualify for the program to keep a newborn with them in the nursery for the first year to 18 months of the baby's life. Um, They also have a parenting program that accompanies it. So that's often kind of heralded as a good program. Even in states that have the facility to provide some opportunity for at least some women to care for their newborn after they give birth, a lot of times those programs, that there are beds left empty because of reluctance of administrators to place women in the program. So that's a real shame that even where where they've been successful in advocating and getting these programs started, a lot of times beds will go unfilled because there is this reluctance to place women in the programs. But most in most cases, women will find that their child will not be staying with them and they'll be sent home either with a, um, a family member or they will be placed directly into foster care. Now, you are a member of the Coalition for Women Prisoners, and you're an advocate for women prisoners' rights. What do you think needs to happen? Well, there are a couple very concrete things that we're currently kind of lobbying for. One is when a woman is incarcerated um, who had Medicaid at the point that she was incarcerated, advocating for a measure that would suspend her Medicaid during her incarceration, but wouldn't terminate it. That would make it much easier when she was released for her to resume uh, her Medicaid and resume her medical treatment. And I think that is just one basic example of something that could be done. Two, um, one, if we could, (laughs) two, if we could rely a lot less on incarceration, not just for women, but for men, that would address a lot of the problems. But given that even you know, in the foreseeable future, we're going to see a lot of women incarcerated. If we could do more to promote not only better visitation policies for children and their parents, but also addressing things like the high cost of of making telephone calls or to provide uh, more and better transportation for the moms and the aunts and the sisters and the foster parents who are trying to make those visits. So doing more to promote the ties between mothers and children. Um, Then I also think just looking hard at the conditions of confinement, um, and in particular paying attention to what is the standard of medical care and reproductive health care that um, incarcerated women are receiving. Well, Jean Flavin, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. That was Fordham professor and prisoner advocate Jean Flavin. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, 100 Years of Times Square. Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We've been talking on Fordham Conversations this morning about women prisoners' health care. It's an issue that Jean Flavin says is closely related to the larger problem of poor health among low-income racial and ethnic minorities. Another major challenge that disproportionately faces these groups is teenage pregnancy. 
In this piece from Cure Youth Radio, two teen mothers in Chicago's southwest side talk about what happened when they found out they were pregnant, when they told other people, and what their lives are like now. My grandma said, I already knew she was going to end up pregnant. What you going to do? That's what he said. What you going to do? Because I, um, I, I was pregnant my eighth grade year, and so I had an abortion. I was, my mom made me get an abortion. I didn't want one. And so then when I got pregnant the following year, it was like I was, I, I was supposed to be pregnant or whatever. So when he was like, what you going to do? I, I wanted to get an abortion, but then I didn't. So I was like, I don't know. It took me a minute to see what I was going to do, though. Uh, he was shocked. He thought that I was going to tell him something else. And um, he looked really upset because he thought of what he thought I was going to tell him. And then when I actually did tell him, his whole head, like, spun around. And he's like, what? And his eyes got all big. And then just walked for a while, and he was real quiet. No, he didn't know at first. I, it, took him a, it took me three months to tell anybody. So he didn't know. I saw him a few times. And I was pregnant, but I didn't tell him. Um, he's very involved, mostly with, um, you know, financially he's, he's awesome. He gets to everything. As a father room, he, I mean, I guess he does really good. He's, yeah, he's, he's a great dad. He's a wonderful dad. He was sometimes, sometimes he was there, sometimes he wanted, sometimes he wanted to pop up and bring me something to eat or something, or sometimes he wanted to go to, take me to the doctor or whatever. He was always sometimes, and then he's a, bootleg drug dealer so he was always um in and out of jail or whatever he got out um wait let me see he got out a week before i had my baby and went in three days after i had her he he got out again and then got locked right back up three days after her birthday I didn't tell my mama. She actually told me. I came. She went shopping. Came home. Gave me these big grandma drawers. They was they was big. I'm like, mom, y'all can't fit them. She's like, you will in a little while. And so then she asked me who was the father or whatever, and I told her. She was mad because she, she she don't like my um baby daddy anyway. Cause she knew he wasn't he wasn't looking out for my best interests. That's what she say all the time. But just wasn't for her daughter. Cause I mean. She just knew that he was going to hurt me. She just knew it. I told my mom when I was uh, at the doctor's with my little sister, so. She was, she's really upset, really, really upset. You know, if I got pregnant, my parents would kick me out of the house, but um, I think I was very lucky. My mom, she's a single parent, but, uh, but she became really supportive, really into the pregnancy, helping me out, baby showers and all of that stuff, so. I mean, it worked out, but of course, if your little girl tells you, hey, mom, I'm pregnant, you're going to be all shocked and like, oh, my God, and try to, like, beat them and stuff, but no, she didn't do it. To be a baby mama, I see you paying you, I see you working you, I see you going to school, and girl, I know it's hard, and even though you're fed up when making beds up, girl, keep your head up on my feet. Oh, my goodness, my grades, it's a mess. 
my GPA went from a 3.5, now it's at a 2.8, and I'm struggling. But I mean, I can't really focus because I be tired all the time. I got kicked out of one of my classes last week for falling asleep. So I mean, it affects my education, but I stay because I know that's what I got to do to better me and my child's life. That's, that's the sacrifice you have to make. Okay, I won't have a 3.5 up on no GPA, but at least I'm making it. And it's barely, but I'm making it. So I can say, Mommy did this. Mommy graduated from high school. Mommy going to college. You can do this. For me, it's not that hard because um, I have, like, a lot of support at home. I have my whole family supports me, and um, her father's family has supports too, so they take care of the baby while I go to school. And it's basically it allows me to go to school, keep my grades up, and then somebody I know and I trust is taking care of the baby. It's the only bad thing about being a teenage mother is that I'm young. That's it. But being a mother, period, it is beautiful. I mean, my daughter, she is so smart, and it be days when I'm crying or tired or whatever, and she come mommy and have me talk my ear off, but it just be days when she just, I don't know, she's a beautiful child right now, my dad. I call her my chocolate sunshine. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great weekend. It's about time we had our own song. Don't know what took so long. Cause nowadays it's like a badge of honor. To be a baby mama. I see you paying you. I see you working. I see you going to school And girl, I know it's hard And even though you're fed up with making beds up Girl, keep your head up on my feet This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org